On this episode of Blue 58, the Packers have a chance this spring to fix a position that's been a problem since 2012. I'm talking about tight end, where the Packers have had to try something new almost every year since Jermichael Finley got hurt. But how do they fix it? Do they dare take a tight end 12th overall? And if so, who? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very excited to be with you here for this episode of our draft preview series. You know I love tight ends. I talk about tight ends a lot. Uh, As I've mentioned, I'm sure ad nauseum at this point, I played tight end when I played football, my lone season of college football. Uh, Growing up, I got stuck at tight end a lot too. Tall, not quite fast enough to be a wide receiver, but not small enough to be a running back you end up being a tight end. And maybe you're not quite heavy enough to be an offensive lineman. This year, the Packers have a chance to finally get a tight end. But before we dive into exactly what the Packers could do, let's take a second to recap how we're doing our draft preview series. In the past, we focused a lot on athletic fits, athletic profile. The Packers have a pretty well-established pattern for what they do. That does weigh into what we do this year, but we're trying to do things a little bit differently. We're trying to get more of a cross-section of the draft from top to bottom. So we're focusing on five, today six, players from each position group. Talking about the best fit, the worst fit, a potential sleeper, a small school player, and a wild card at the position. Basically, this is going to give us a little bit of perspective on each end of the draft. High end, low end, guys who could go somewhere in the middle, guys the Packers should just stay away from. And I think this is going to give us a better, more well-rounded perspective on the draft class. So let's dive into tight ends. Before we talk about players particular that the Packers could draft in particular, let's talk about the tight end problem because it is a problem. Why are the Packers here? Why are we even talking about them potentially drafting a tight end? They may not need one per se, but it's not a a position group where they feel like they're really settled. I think that's fair to say. They may disagree. Brian Gutekunst has come out pretty strongly in favor of Jimmy Graham. That's got to be at least somewhat marketing on his perspective because I don't think you could look at Jimmy Graham's 2018 and really say that you're super pleased with how things went, even recognizing that he dealt with some injuries. But the Packers are here because Jermichael Finley got hurt uh, and got hurt enough that he had to call it a career. After he ends up getting wheeled out of Lambeau Field on a backboard, the Packers end up drafting Richard Rodgers in 2014. And he's just okay. They run it back with a little more Richard Rodgers in 2015 before deciding, you know what, we got to bring in Jared Cook in 2016. He's there for exactly one year before they move on to Martellus Bennett. We all know how that ends. And then 2018, we've got Jimmy Graham in the house. The Packers have had to do a lot of different things here. And Jimmy Graham is no spring chicken. Mercedes Lewis, much the same. They've got to do something to get this position figured out long term. And in a year like this, This is a good time to inject a little bit of youth and talent into the group. But what is a tight end in 2019 anyway? Well, I think right out of the the gate, we need to bump the brakes on the idea of finding the next Rob Gronkowski or even the next 1,000-yard tight end. There aren't many of of those 1,000-yard receiver type tight ends. And I think trying to find one is kind of foolish. And finding the next Rob Gronkowski is probably silly. He is certainly the most dominant tight end of his era. 
I don't like to do the best of all time thing for reasons that I've laid out in past episodes, but if you're doing a ranking like that, he would be on the list. And like I said, he's certainly the best tight end from the time in which he played. Peak Rob Gronkowski is probably as good as anybody who's ever done it. Trying to find the next one of those is probably uh, probably silly. You're just not going to find it. And you're probably not going to find a guy who can put up 800 to 1,000 yards right away anyway. So aiming for super, super big results is probably not, not the best way to go about this. Then you have to ask, what even is a tight end to Matt LaFleur? He used a lot of them in Tennessee, not so much in Los Angeles or Atlanta. At least the, the, the guys who were running the show ahead of him in the, both of those places didn't really use tons and tons of tight ends. And this is not necessarily a future predictor either because he was pretty limited in the tight end group that he had in Tennessee too. Delaney Walker got hurt early in the year. It probably would have been a big part of his offense last season. And we, as a result, didn't get a full picture probably of Matt, what Matt LaFleur would like to do with tight ends. It's safe to say he's probably going to have them be a little bit more blocking oriented than Mike McCarthy did, but that's partly just because of what Mike McCarthy did with his tight ends. He didn't really use them as blockers. Again, though, not necessarily a predictor of what Lafleur is going to use in the future. We're going to have to wait and see. Finally, we have to ask, where do you even take a tight end? Well, asking the Packers to take a tight end at 12th overall is a bit of a fraught question. That's just something that's not done very often. And I know there's a lot of TJ Hawkinson fans out there, but I don't think people really realize the caliber of player you need to be talking about to get a tight end even drafted in the top 12. Not necessarily even that he's good, just drafted. How do we know that? Well, it's pretty rare that a tight end gets drafted that high at all, much less that they're good. Since 1999, the last 20 years, only three tight ends have been taken 12th overall or higher. Eric Ebron, Vince, or Vernon Davis, not Vince Davis. I don't know who Vince Davis is. Kellen and Kellen Winslow Jr. Arguably, two of those three didn't really pan out. Kellen Winslow had a couple good seasons there with Cleveland. But um, things have gone downhill for him since then. And we'll just leave it at that. Expanding that purview out a little bit, only seven tight ends since 1999 have been taken in the top 20. That list gets us to O.J. Howard, Brandon Pettigrew, Jeremy Shockey, and Bubba Franks. Again, a lot of talent on the board there, not a lot of results. Even expanding it further out to get all the way down to pick number 30, where the Packers have their second of two first-round selections, only 19 tight ends have been selected in the top 30 picks of the draft since 1999. Now, 10 of those 19 have made at least one Pro Bowl in their career, but... That's only a 50% hit rate, and there's only been 19 tight ends who the NFL, as a league, have decided that are worth getting picked in the first round. You can find tight ends later, so don't get too bent out of shape, I guess. And this is a reminder to myself as much as anybody, if the Packers don't take a tight end super early. A big part of this exercise for me, as I've looked at this class, is kind of trying to talk myself out of the Packers taking a tight end at number 30 overall. I think we have to get comfortable with the idea of it not happening in the first round. And I know a lot of these tight ends, particularly the two from Iowa, who we'll talk about here in a second, 
have been talked up as first round uh, first round picks. That's fine, but I'm not sure that's a great use of the Packers' resources. They've got needs elsewhere that probably outstrip what tight end is ever going to be for them. Here's where I've kind of landed on tight end as well. Tight end might be, for what you get from that position, might be the most overrated position on offense. Think about the position groups. You've got quarterback, kind of a thing unto itself, your backs, your receivers, and your tight ends, along with the offensive line. Of those, most of those position groups are pretty well understood. Quarterback, obviously important. Offensive line, hugely significant. Hard to underrate it. Hard to overrate it, really. I I, I mean, wide receiver, you know you need some good ones, but I think people are pretty comfortable with the idea that you can produce with four or five good wide receivers almost as well as you can with just one super mega stud guy. Running backs are as low value as they've ever been. People are pretty on board with the idea that running backs are not not necessarily unimportant, but you don't have to have that best running back in the league to really make an impact. But tight end, since it does a lot of things, can be a receiver, can be a blocker, is generally a big athletic looking guy. People, I think, overrate in their minds, me as much as anybody, what you should be getting out of your tight end spot. And that leads to some outsized expectations. Even Jimmy Graham was a victim of that last year, and that's partly due to the contract he signed, but he was on pace before he really started getting hurt for a pretty good statistical year, better than any tight end since Jermichael Finley. But it was still not enough for people. Again, partly because of the contract, but I think mostly because we have just such outsized expectations for this position, and we really haven't had a reckoning on, okay, what do we really expect from these tight ends anyway? That's happened with running backs. That's happened with receivers. That's even happened, I think, with quarterbacks. Tight ends, it doesn't seem like we're quite there yet. We are still in love with the idea, partly probably because of Tony Gonzalez and and, uh, Antonio Gates, that you can just get this big former basketball player, athletic dude, and you'll roll him out there and get 1,000-yard season after 1,000-yard season. That's not necessarily the case. And expecting that out of whoever the Packers pick, if they even pick a tight end, is probably a mistake. Who could they actually pick, though? Let's run through our five qualifiers. Best fit, worst fit, sleeper, small school, and wild card. Starting with the best fit. I'm cheating here, and I'm saying either Noah Fant or TJ Hawkinson from Iowa. Is it a cop-out? You bet it is. I like Fant better, but I think a lot more people like TJ Hawkinson as the number one tight end in this draft class. Based on where people think TJ Hawkinson is probably likely going to be drafted, to me, that makes Font the better fit, or Fant uh, the better fit for the Packers. Skill set-wise, Hawkinson is probably better. Probably a better fit. He could probably play earlier. He could probably contribute earlier. And the Packers probably don't need another receiving-only tight end right now, and that seems like what Noah Fant is. But assuming that the Packers don't pick either of them at 12th overall, and I don't think they should, I think it comes down to Noah, Noah Fant, at number 30. I don't think Hawkinson is going to be there, and I I have some mild reservations there. Sure, he can play very well. Sure, he's a great blocker. I've watched actual tape on these guys. I think 
Hawkinson is probably the better player, but he looks just a little bit stiff to me. Very insider NFL draft type evaluation there. Talk about his his knees and hips being stiff, but seriously, watch him run a little bit. He doesn't look like the sort of fluid athlete that you get from Noah Fant. He looks stiff in his hips and his knees when he runs, and sometimes it almost looks like he's in pain when he runs. Uh, This is coming from a guy who's remarkably out of shape compared to any of these guys that are going to get drafted. So take that with a huge grain of salt. But on the other hand, that's not to say that Fant's tape is just immaculate. You see the big plays. You see the great receiving stuff. You see him get down the seam. It's impressive. And he's as athletic as a tight end that you could ask for. But sometimes he just looks so passive in his run blocking. In his draft series on the top 100 players in the draft. Dane Brugler of The Athletic says this, quote, he is an inconsistent get-in-the-way blocker, but he should improve once he zeroes in on the details of the position, end quote. I don't know about the second half of that. I haven't watched, obviously, as much film, but I think describing him as a get-in-the-way blocker is good. That is accurate. He just seems to try to get in the way as much as really engage with, with, with guys. If you want the word of a guy who has looked into this way more than any of us have, Mel Kuyper had a really interesting description of the Noah Fant, TJ Hawkinson situation. Uh, When he spoke with Ryan Rossillo on his podcast recently, either for The Ringer or ESPN, I get them mixed up sometimes. He's got two shows. They're both worth listening to if you're into that kind of thing. Mel Kuyper Jr., if you can tolerate listening to him, had a great observation, I think, about Fant and Hawkinson. Fant has the job. And basically, Mel Kuyper Jr. points out that Hawkinson came in and took it away. And by the end of last season, it seemed like Fant was getting all but phased out of games in Iowa. And it was a real problem for him down the stretch. The SB Nation blog for Iowa had a piece on how he kind of disappeared against Northwestern, and he did not seem super happy about it. Here's what he said in that piece. Quote, our coaches decided to give some other guys the ball. Not saying it's right or wrong, but yeah, I'm not really sure. That'd be a better question for the coaching staff. He also had a weird thing with his brother last season about saying some odd stuff on Twitter about his his brother's, no offense, uh, playing time with Iowa. If you have a famous sibling, do not do this. This is a bad idea. It will not end well for anybody involved. And there was just this feeling of unrest, it seemed like, at Iowa, perhaps mild, perhaps not, about how things played out for Fant, who seems like a high upside player, to say the very least, but didn't didn't necessarily deliver that on the field. So what do you do here? Well, if you're the Packers, I think you wait until 30 and see what's there and decide if that's really when you want to take a tight end. If both are available, which I don't think is going to happen at 30, you probably take Hawkinson if it's just Fant and you're not super sold on the other tight end prospects. Maybe you take him at 30. I would prefer to probably wait until 44. Both of these guys, though, seems like seem like they could be good pros. So maybe you just let it come to you. See what's there at 44. If all the other blue chip tight ends are off the board by then, maybe Dems the brakes. So what? There are other tight end prospects out there. The worst fit, I think, and this is not an indictment of him so much as, again, the indictment of the draft process, is Zach Gentry of Michigan. On paper, say if, if you're playing Madden or if you're really old school recruiting, in NCAA football, RIP that franchise. If you had a chance to pick up a six foot eight tight end on Madden or on NCAA football, you probably go for it. 
I know I would. Even if you ran a 4.9 like Zach Gentry, I think you'd still be interested. So what makes him a bad fit for the Packers? Two things, production and blocking. First, production. Gentry did not dominate his competition really as you'd expect for a guy who was good enough to be a, a Division I starting quarterback coming out of high school and then switched to tight end. A six foot eight, 260-pound guy such as Mr. Gentry should have had better stats than he did. Michigan has had problems with quarterbacks for basically Jim Harbaugh's entire tenure in Ann Arbor. I know that better than most living near him now, him living near there now. I guess I probably do live near Jim Harbaugh somehow. I don't know where he lives. Um, But being in Michigan country, I guess I know that better than most. It still feels like he should have been better. At the very least, at six foot eight and about 260 pounds, he should be a better blocker than he was. I had an opportunity to see a couple Michigan games in person over the last couple of years, and I always like to look for the draft eligible type players when I'm there. And in both of the games I was there, Gentry just was almost completely invisible. The second of two games when I was there, he had a fantastic catch down in the red zone. It wasn't a touchdown, but he made a great adjustment on a ball as a receiver. But that was really the only play he made. And he didn't really make any of those intermediate sort of plays either. Nothing that makes you notice him outside of the big highlight reel stuff. Does that make sense? I think so. Let's move on to sleepers. This one, we get a bit of a break here because Jay Sternberger of Texas A&M is extra on the Packers radar this week because he visited Green Bay today, according to his Instagram. Sternberger is... One of those kind of of middle-of-the-road prospects who stands out for reasons that I think are very good. As an athlete, he is good but not great. Six foot four, 250 pounds, just 471 in the 40, which is fine, not outstanding. A 31-inch vertical, okay, not great. 113-inch broad jump, again, okay, not great. But pretty good agility scores, and what really gets exciting here is his production. Let's turn to Dane Brugler again from The Athletic. He and Irv Smith are two of the most productive tight ends in the draft this year, at least in terms of big play production. Here's what Brugler writes, and I'm going to pull a couple different quotes from different parts of his little mini profile here, so I'm just going to read them all as as though they're one quote. If you want to look up the entire thing yourself, you can Irv Smith of Alabama and Texas A&M's Jay Sternberger were the only FBS tight ends in 2018 with 40-plus catches and 16.1 yards per catch. Sternberger offers tremendous yard after catch and down-the-seam value, recording at least 20-plus yard catch in 12 of his 13 games in 2018. Overall, Sternberger is a vertical pass-catching target with athleticism and warrior toughness to be a mismatch weapon projecting as an NFL joker tight end. Sternberger's a bit of a sleeper because he's not projected to go super early. Think more like round three, round four, maybe a little bit later than that. And if you get him in those rounds, I think he's bringing you similar value to what you'd get from Noah Fant at a lower cost. If you can get him in rounds three or four as well, you also don't feel pressure to have him produce right away. He can be kind of like your rich man's Robert Tanyan. You can almost redshirt him as a rookie, let him figure out what it takes to be an NFL tight end, and then in in 2020, you can really turn him loose. It's almost as though whatever you get from him out of this year is a bonus. You still get a blue chip player, 
but he doesn't have to necessarily contribute this year. Makes sense? I think that's a name to watch. Small school players, this gets really fun. Donald Parham, 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 P-A-R-H-A-M out of Stetson. If you liked Michael Clark, you will love Donald Parham. He is 6 feet 8 inches tall, 243 pounds, an FCS All-America player with absolutely mind-boggling stats as a senior. In his 2018 campaign, he had 85 catches for just over 1,300 yards and 13 touchdowns. He averaged averaged 146.6 yards per game. And it will surprise exactly zero people that he was also a high school letterman in basketball. At 6 feet 8, I would hope so. But what's also cool is he's a pretty smart guy. He was an honor roll student, a member of the National Honor Society growing up, and he also carried a weighted GPA of 4.3, according to his Stetson bio. Where even is Stetson? Well, it's not in Texas, although it sounds like a cowboy hat. The Stetson mascot is the Hatters, though. Stetson University is in Central Florida. The notable alumni of Stetson include Jacob deGrom, the now highly played Major League Baseball pitcher, Britt McHenry, the former ESPN analyst and now Fox News contributor, and Adrian Rogers, a name who you will not recognize unless you are familiar with famous preachers from certain circles of Christianity. My dad will definitely recognize that that name. Adrian Rogers, even if you're if you're not into preacher history, look him up sometime. He's got just the classic old school preacher voice, and you almost are obligated to sit up and listen no matter what he's saying. None of this is about Donald Parham. I still think it's interesting. Here's what Dane Brugler says about this giant target. A tall, lean slot target, Parham is a loose-jointed athlete with a humongous catch radius to pluck and create after the catch, picking up speed when he can stretch out his long strides. We know the Packers have had an increased tendency towards bigger receivers since since um, Brian Gutekunst took over as general manager. This certainly fits the bill. Donald Parham would be fun to watch. A sixth or seventh round pick, as most, may be a priority free agent, but he would be fun to see in Green Bay. The wild card. Let's talk about Irv Smith from Alabama. There are two potential drawbacks here, as well as a potential big upside. The upside is pretty obvious. He was undeniably productive, as we talked about with Sternberger. All of the nuggets that Dane Brugler had about Sternberger also kind of talked about Irv Smith. So big-time productive player at Alabama. But the two questions there are also pretty straightforward. First, what do you do with a guy his size? At six foot two. Just over 240 pounds, he would be on the small size for a tight end. You think about DJ Williams, uh, the former Green Bay Packers tight end. He was a Mackey Award winner who was also about the same size. Just about six foot two, a little bit over, just over 240 pounds. Not really the dominant physical specimen that you'd expect from one of these highly productive college tight ends. The same is true of Irv Smith. The second question is more of a personal one. What is the deal with Alabama football players? I think you end up with two things when you've got a guy coming out of Alabama. And we've talked about this before. Uh, er, uh, Ha Ha Clinton Dix was the 
most recent example, I think, of this phenomenon, at least as it related to the Packers. But Eddie, uh, Eddie Lacy falls into this a little bit too. I think you get one of two kinds of football players coming out of Alabama. Alabama is a notoriously tough program. So I think you either get a guy, once they get out from under Nick Saban, who is totally used up and burned out on football, or who is completely galvanized and really ready to take things to the next level. Nick Saban's a hard guy to be around. He's a tough coach to play under. And I don't blame guys for deciding, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm I'm just tired of things being this way. I don't enjoy football anymore, even though I'm getting paid for it now. It's just, it doesn't seem quite the same. And I think Eddie Lacy fell into that a little bit with the Packers. I think HaHa Clinton Dix may have fallen into that a little bit. So I wonder about anybody coming out of Alabama if that's going to be a problem. But you've also got the opposite possibility. Maybe Irv Smith is one of these guys who's just absolutely galvanized. He's got all of his ducks in a row. He knows what he needs to do to be a pro, and he's really ready to take things to the next level. He's come through the fire that is Alabama football, and he's emerged on the other side ready to really take things to the next level. Beyond that, all the scouting stuff on him is pretty much immaculate. It's the size and the Alabama background that are question marks for me. Maybe not for the Packers, maybe not for another NFL team, but I think they are questions nonetheless. And it'll be interesting to see where he ends up getting taken. The Packers at 44 are an option. I still think that's a little bit high to take a six foot two tight end, but you never know. Maybe the Packers are looking for something a little bit different from the position now that they have Matt LaFleur. Those are the tight ends. This is the time for the Packers to fix something like this. I think they are almost obligated to take a tight end at some point in the draft. Where exactly? I'm not sure. But this seems like the year when they've got to do it. They've got to inject a little bit of something into the offense. Uh, They did wide receivers last year. They're probably going to look at running back a little bit this year. But tight end is also a place where they need an infusion of talent. And this seems like the year to get it. While I've got you here, I want to talk for a second about the Alliance of American Football. We found out today that it's over, pretty much. Uh, There are some reports that say they're still holding on out hope of getting this thing straightened out. Maybe. Uh, I would not hold my breath. The question I have, though, is why does this keep happening? I think there's an answer to there. Uh, We've seen a lot of quasi-professional leagues pop up over the past few years. I was a big fan of the the UFL, the United Football League, back when I was in college. That was fun to follow. But they all follow pretty much the same life cycle. There is a brief period of excitement where they get people talking about an NFL minor league. It looks like they've got some funding lined up. They start rolling out uniforms. Some people you know get connected to it. Uh, some former players you've heard of. You look through the roster, see these are the guys that used to play for the Packers. Oh, hey, there's this guy. He was good in college. This could be fun to watch. And it often is fun to watch for a little bit. But then the money starts to dry up. And eventually things just kind of fall apart. And every time we hear the same refrain. Why can't the NFL get this minor league 
thing figured out. It seems like they really need one. Well, what's the obvious answer there? Why can't the NFL get it figured out? We're asking the wrong question. The NFL does have it figured out. The NFL has a minor league. It's called college football. And as long as college football is providing them with a steady stream of NFL-ready players, they're not going to fix it. College football is undeniably corrupt. There is too much money going on there. There is too much bad stuff to even enumerate effectively in a short amount of time. Everybody who follows the sport with any amount of seriousness knows that to some level. Even if you want to deny most of it, you can't deny how much money is pouring into that sport each and every year. And with money, there is inevitably corruption. Even if you don't want to believe that it's there, you have to at least acknowledge that it's a possibility. That's not the NFL's problem because the NFL keeps getting these pro-ready players, maybe not as many as there possibly could be. Maybe they don't maximize the amount of talent coming out of their minor league system, but they get them nonetheless. That leaves us with one question we should actually ask. Whenever the Alliance of American Football or the UFL or the Spring League or whatever goes under, the question we should not ask is, why can't the NFL get a minor league sorted out? The question should be, why would the NFL want to create another minor league at all? Why would they spend time, spend money, spend resources, spreading their practice squad players out even more thinly? Why would they devote the time to scouting that extra league? They've already got a pipeline of talent coming in. Why would they want to give them another, themselves another thing to worry about? And why would they want to risk money that may not turn them a profit? They've got a minor league right now that's operating essentially for free. Why would they want to change that? That's the question when it comes to the Alliance of, Mer- of American Football or whatever minor league wannabe that comes next. Not, why can't the NFL get it sorted out? Why would the NFL want to? That's all I've got for you on this episode. Thank you so much for listening, for downloading, for rating, for subscribing, all of that great stuff. It helps more people find the show whenever you do that. That is the best way to support us, rating and reviewing on iTunes or whatever or wherever you listen, including now Spotify. That helps more people find the show. If you want to take your support to the next level, the most straightforward way to do that is to donate a dollar per month at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. One dollar per month helps us offset all of our hosting costs, both for the podcast and for the site. And don't forget to check out our selection of t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com. If you've got an idea for the show or just want to stop by and say hi, reach us at thepowersweep.com on Facebook and on Twitter or by emailing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. We do appreciate anybody who takes the time to reach out. Any bit of feedback, any questions or thoughts you offer helps us make this show better and helps us make the power sweep better and helps all of us become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I've been your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.